Folks, we're back in Genesis, and I'm going to undertake today to talk about five days of God's creation. Thankfully, it's only four because I talked about the first one a little bit already. But Genesis 1 through 11, I just want to reiterate to you, is literal historical narrative. You can't escape that. Even though many voices call out for it to be poetry, but it's not myth, it's not poetry, it's not figurative, it's not allegory. And we need to understand that as we come to this, there's reasons that we take this to be literal, historical narrative. Just the plain reading of the text reads as a narrative. You would not come up with all the convoluted explanations that we have by moderns uh, for this to be long ages and so forth and so on, or to be poetry and so forth and so on. You would take it to be exactly as it reads. It's like a fast-moving story. Day one, day two, day three, day four. It just goes on through. So the plain reading of the text reads as a narrative. Now, grammatically... If you want to dive down into the weeds a little bit, there's a little Hebrew um, consecutive, the Vav consecutive, which I'm not going to bore you with a lot of information, but it is at the beginning of every verse here. You have in verse 3, then God said. And in verse 6, then God said. And in verse 9, then God said. That little then is a vav consecutive, and in Hebrew, what that signifies is that it is a narrative. It's one thing leading to the next thing, leading to the next thing. It's used approximately 50 times in Genesis 1-1 through 2-4. And it's used to present events in a historical sequence. Now, if Genesis 1-1 to 2-4 is not literal and historical, then there's no historical Adam. And you've got some problems there. And there's no original sin because there's no historical Adam. So Romans 5.12 and 1 Corinthians 15.45 refute that categorically. And Jesus himself referred to Adam as a historical uh, man. So all these help us to understand that this is history and it is written in a narrative fashion. Now, Genesis 1.1, we said, was an absolute beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the first phase of a step taken is carried by Bershith. Bershith bara Elohim. Bershith is the first phase of a step taken. We say, in the beginning. That's how we interpret that word. Elohim, obviously, is a plural noun. And so we say that everything that got its beginning here, which is an absolute beginning of all things that we can conceive of, and that is our universe that we live in, started with a person, Elohim. It did not start as something from nothing. It didn't have an impersonal beginning. It had a personal beginning. This is so very, very important. Because if there was no personal beginning, then 
there is no reason for us to act in a way that the person of God tells us to act. We are free agents, and we will do just as we please, and that's the end of it. We're autonomous. We're independent as individuals. But it's not nobody times nothing equals everything. But that's what evolutionists and many in our modern world would have us believe. He is self-existent, Elohim is, because in the beginning of all things, he already existed. So he's self-existent and he's self-sufficient. If he was in the beginning creating everything that there is, air, food, water, everything, then he didn't need any of that to exist. And when he created bara, he created from nothing. He didn't need anything to create with. Now, as we go through the five days of creation, because I'm only going to go up to the fifth day, Lord willing, we'll see that he does take something that he created from nothing and then uses it to make something else. And there's a difference between the word Hebrew word bara, which is from nothing, ex nihilo, and asa, which is to take something that's already in form and reform it or differentiate it. We'll get to that in a little bit. I also want to say that there was a famous physicist from the 1800s that claimed that there are basically five categories of the empirically knowable. There are only five categories. This is what he says uh, scientists would use. There is time, force, action, space, and matter. And this was in the 1800s, late 1800s. Henry Spencer was a man's name. And he promoted that, and he was like lauded. This is like, oh, the guy has really encapsulated truth. We really understand now. But Genesis 1.1 covers each of those elements. In the beginning, that's time. God, that's force. Created, that's action. The heavens, that's space. And the earth, that's matter. And so God encapsulates in the very first verse of the Bible what this man discovered in the 1800s and was lauded for. <laughs> I don't even want to comment on that. That's enough. Genesis 1-2 then tells us that the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Very quickly, the earth was formless, tohu, vav, bohu. It was formless and it was empty. Tohu means to be unformed in the Hebrew. Bah, uh, excuse me, bohu means empty with no inhabitants. It was not inhabited. So initially, there was this mass of something, liquid, I think, watery, but it wasn't formed at all. It's hard for me to conceive of that, to be honest with you, uh, because everything that I can think of has some shape or form. But in the beginning, we're told that the earth that was created was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, which makes me think it was all watery mass. 
and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. The Spirit of God is referring to the third person of the Trinity, which is the Spirit of God. And he moved over the waters. Um, that word moved is also translated as to, to shake or flutter, a rapid back and forth movement like, a, like a, a, a chicken would do over the eggs that she's sitting on, okay? Which some scientists say is the beginning of waves and everything that has energy in our universe operates on waves, which is a rapid back and forth movement. I'm not a scientist. I don't know. I just take this as the Spirit of God was active <laughs> in the creation. Well, as we look at day one, let me continue to read on verse three. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning one day. One day. Let's pray as we break into these days of creation. Father God, this is a tall order to walk through this many verses, but Lord, I think that as we go through them, we'll get a glimpse of your magnificent glory, your sovereignty over all things, because all things were created by you and for you. And Lord, uh, we will also see how you prepared this earth for the arrival of mankind. Lord, uh, you had us in mind as you were doing this, and it staggers our imagination to think that you thought of us. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that we have air to breathe, and that we have water to drink and food to eat, and all of this is provided by you. And yet so many people in the world give you no gratefulness or thankfulness whatsoever. Father, help us to be vocal with our understanding of creation to those that do not believe that it might challenge their thinking. Thank you for your word that revealed to us things that we could not know without this revelation. Again, a revelation of yourself. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we move through day one and the following verses, we see that the beginning time was created. That just in itself, we could just sit and think about that for quite a while. Can you think of a time when there was no time? The answer is no. But yet we're told that time was created in the beginning. And then the heavens, space was created. And then earth, which is matter, was created. And then light. Light is energy. And it's initial light because day four, we have the creation of the light bearers. Or the light, um, yeah, the light bearers, the sun and the moon. And some of you really sharp ones will say, well, wait a second, he says day and night here, right at the beginning, there was no sun and moon. How does that work? I don't know. I don't know. We'll talk about it a little bit as we go into understanding what that light might have been. But the north and the south were created, rotation and magnetic field, because light and dark designations reveals that there is now a rotation of the earth. And the division of the dark and light was established, night and day cycle, and time was established, and there was evening and there was morning one day. 
The entire structure of the initial cosmos was declared to be good by God. And it was one day. Now, some interesting things I just want to point out, and we'll get into this as we go along. Verse 3 says, Then God said, Then God said, There's an awful lot of speaking here by God, and when he speaks, it comes to pass. But there's also a lot of seeing, because God saw. God said, and God saw. All the way through here, you see this. And also, I want you to notice that in verse 4, it says that God separated the light from the darkness. That's kind of his ongoing dealing with the creation that he barad, that he created from nothing. Then he begins to um, distinguish between elements that he created, light from darkness. And we move on through the text. And finally, he says that everything that he had created was good. That God separated the light from the darkness, called the light day, dark night, and there was evening and there was morning one day. One day. That one day, you'll see at the end of each of the six days of creation, he declares one day, day two, day three, all the way down. And that, that shows us also that there's sequence involved here very clearly. In Genesis 1, 6 through 7, we see the second day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Now the reason that it doesn't say, and God saw that it was good, is because he already said that. <laughs> he's just working what he's already created here. It's obviously good because he already pro- proclaimed it to be good. But the second day is the only place where it doesn't say at the end that it was good. The then discourse marker, as I mentioned, for narrative is found at the start of each of the six days. You'll see it at the start in verse 3, in verse 6, in verse 9, in verse 14, in verse 20, and in verse 24. So at the start of each of the days of creation, it says, then. It also says, God said. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. The expanse. The word signifies something that's very, very thin and stretched out. In making the expanse, God placed it between the waters below and the waters above. Most take this expanse to be atmospheric space, or what we call the heavens. And the expanse is named such in verse 8. Let's look at verse 8. And God called the expanse heaven. Okay? But I want you to understand, there's more to it than that, because there's heaven and then there's heaven, isn't there? There are actually three distinct heavens in the Bible. The expanse referred to in Genesis 1, 6 through 8 refers to our atmosphere. And the expanse referred to in Genesis 1, 14, 
would point to the stellar heaven where the sun and moon reside. While the expanse of Ezekiel's vision, remember the vision that Ezekiel had of God sitting on his throne, Ezekiel one twenty two and following, refers to the dwelling place of God. And that fits well with Paul's description of the third heaven. So you can't just take one biblical word and make it mean the same thing all the way through the scriptures. You have to look at the context. And so there are actually three distinct heavens that are described in the scriptures. And it says, and God made, in verse 7, and this is not the word bara for create, it's the word asa, which is to make something. It means to make something from pre-existing matter. And so, this is God we're talking about, right? So it boggles our mind. He made the expanse to separate the waters below from the waters above. And he's beginning this differentiation of his created world. He's separating it out, and he's beginning to prepare it for the climax, which comes on day six, us. It's all preparatory for us, and we'll see that as we go on. Now, how the waters above and below play a part in the great flood. You see the canopy model, and some of you have heard about this. It's come into disrepute, but not by me. (laughs) And I already confess to you that I'm not a scientist, but the plain reading of Scripture gives me pause with the... the, uh, challenges to this. One interpretation of these early chapters of Genesis is a canopy model, which means the waters above the expanse in 1, 6 through 8 are the waters in this model and are taken to refer to the floodgates of the sky joined with the fountains of the deep in 7-11 during the flood. And the fountains of the deep opened up and the floodgates of heaven opened up and rain came down and water consumed the earth. So that in Peter, 2 Peter 3, 5 through 6, it says, For this they will willfully forget, that the word of God, by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Now, as I mentioned, in recent years, the canopy model has been replaced with other explanations, and some explain it to be a layer of water that encloses the universe. Where they get that, I don't know, but I guess you can say whatever you want. The canopy model suggested that the water canopy collapsed at the time of the flood, the windows of heaven being opened, and the beginning of the flood in Genesis 7:11, and also in 8, 2, it says the same thing. Now, we don't see these waters above now because the canopy no longer exists. I would say I agree with that. While some creationists still support the canopy model, most creation scientists do not. Now, I don't like that because here again now we're putting creation scientists like the experts. (laughs) And we need to be careful that, and here's their rationale. Nor do most major creation ministries such as Answers in Genesis, of which I hold in high regard, believe me, they, they are excellent. 
But the basic reason they reject the canopy model is that despite much effort expended to make a physical model of the canopy visible, no such working model has ever produced it. I don't care. Make me a model of the expanse. I'm sorry. I, I just think sometimes, you know, it's, it's a slippery slope when we start going in directions where we think we understand. I'm all for letting God be God and every man a liar. I, I feel much more comfortable, even though I might not understand what he is saying, to take it at face value. Instead of the canopy theory, some promote the water to be the atmospheric regions, and that would not be above, but that would not be above the heavens. Answers in Genesis postulates that the waters above the expanse are beyond the realm of where we find astronomical bodies. So it'd have to be above the sun and the moon and the stars, and pretty soon you're getting out to the out, farthest out reaches of the universe. Who's been there? I don't know. We don't have pictures of that yet. Modern cosmologists who reject biblical cosmology are split on whether the universe is finite or infinite. If you have water at the far reaches of the universe and it's enveloping the universe, then the universe is finite. And some cosmologists don't agree with that. But there is something even more profound here. For there to be water at the edge of the universe, the universe must have an edge. The universe having an edge is anathema to modern cosmologists. So, frankly, as I've been doing reading and studying on this, even though the canopy theory is held in disregard now, they kind of refute themselves. As I'm reading, they're saying, well, it could be this and it could be that. It's definitely not the canopy theory. (laughs) I'm one of those creationists that retain the canopy theory. Whether the water above formed an actual canopy or not, It must have created some kind of atmospheric effect, which could have been the water vapor. Before the flood, there was no rain, Genesis 2.25. There was no rain on the earth. And prior to the flood, the longevity of man was much greater, wasn't it? 900 plus years. None of these other theories that I studied up on and looked at really gave good answers for why post-flood the age of man began to get less and less. But if that canopy was blocking out ultraviolet rays and protecting mankind and the longevity of man, to me, that makes sense. That is not far-fetched for me to grasp. And if that canopy was then the uh, windows of heaven and came down, then those ultraviolet rays increased and the age of men began to decrease. To me, that that works. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. They also believe it provided a uniform climate. Okay, if you have that canopy, like that of a hothouse, without the violent storms and winds, which we now experience post-flood. Or like, you know, summer for a week and then winter for the rest of the year. Yikes. The world changed drastically after the flood, with human longevity decreased. We do know that for a fact, according to the Scripture. So I don't know where you fall on that. Um, We could debate that, I'm sure. Um, I should ask Jay about that, Jay Siegert, see what his thinking is on that. At the end of the day, the Bible uses the evening-morning formula again and again. 
And what it does is it provides us also, not just with the evening-morning formula, it gives a cardinal number every single time. And the flow of six evening and mornings with a seventh day of rest forms the normal sequence of a week. And this is reiterated in Exodus 20, verse 9, and the institution of the Sabbath. In six days you shall labor, but on the seventh it is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God. Just the plain reading, people, okay? Just the plain reading of that. Would you not think that it's referring to the creation week and the six days that God did the creation work and on the seventh he rested and then in the Decalogue, in Exodus, he's laying down the law, so to speak, and he says, I want you to keep the Sabbath day, okay? So there will be six days of work week that you work, but on the seventh day, I want you to make it holy as a Sabbath for me. It seems just so easy to understand, and maybe that's the way we should think of these things. Now, all of this is, as I said, preparation Each day prepares the earth more fully for the habitation of mankind. God is preparing a place for mankind to live and thrive in. And with that preparation, the climax is the creation of humanity. Could you go ahead and put that slide up? This is just a, a help for you to understand how these days work. Form versus tohu, unformed. So in the, the very beginning... The earth was tohu vav bohu, okay? It was unformed and empty or uninhabited. On the first day, light. But then on the fourth day, you have the light bearers created. On the second day, we have the firmament, the sky and the seas, the expanse separating water from below, water from above. And on the fifth day, you have its inhabitants, birds and fish. On the third day, you have dry land, appearing as it separates from the water below, and vegetation is made. And then on the sixth day, you have land animals and human beings being created. And that's just a little chart that you can maybe jot down and and keep for yourself to help you to understand how God worked in the first six days. Let me read Genesis 1, 9 through 13 for day three. Then God said, there's that formula again, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit, trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them, and it was so. And the earth was brought forth, vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them and after their kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, a third day. So here we have everything is still tohu vabohu, unformed, unfilled, at the beginning of the third day. True, there is an expanse between the waters below and the waters above, but there's nothing on the spherical form of the water 
nor in the expanse. And nothing could yet exist as it had not yet been created. But by the end of day three, there will be earth and vegetation all created by God on that one day. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. First, God commanded the waters to gather together into one place. And let the dry land appear. As God gathered all the waters, dry land appeared. At the time of the creation, there seems to have been one massive continent. Many geologists believe that there has been a breaking apart or continental drift from a single mass. And maybe you've seen some maps that show how the continents kind of fit together. Okay? I don't know. We're not exactly told, but it seems like that's feasible here. And God named his work. Just as he did on day one and day two, he now said, God called the dry land earth. He gives names to things. Isn't that interesting? A little bit later, we're going to find about Adam. And Adam does what? He gives names, doesn't he, to all the animals because he's created in the image of God. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. This then is the third major division. The first division we saw on day one where God divided the light from the darkness. On the second day, God divided the waters below from the waters above. Now today... On the third day, God divides the land from the sea. So he's differentiating that which has already been created. He's beginning to form. And so you're moving from the formlessness to form, and from the emptiness we'll see as he begins to create that he fills now these forms that he's creating. Let the earth bring forth grass, an herb that yields seed, And the fruit trees that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. God spoke plant life into existence. No process here, no length of time. And God created things fully mature. Deshe is grass, Eseb is herbs, and Etz is trees. It's a general term for vegetation, the grasses. And the herbs yield seed of its own kind. And the trees yield seed of its own kind. God created everything fully mature. He didn't have a little starter garden like all of you do now, and you had to bring it back in last night, right? Because those plants would die. No, they wouldn't harden. They'd die. (laughs) So you brought it in. So he created everything fully mature. They didn't have an illusion of maturity. They were mature with their seed in them. After its kind. Ten times this phrase is used, after its kind. In verse 11, 12, 21, 14, and 25. Speaking of seeds, trees, and creatures. After their kind. Everything that we know about biology of plants verifies this simple statement in Genesis chapter 1. The biological structure and nature of any given earth produce is contained within the cellular information of that specific plant. That very complex internal information assures us that an apple tree won't 
produce lemons. Okay? And that a rose will never become a petunia. The fact that there are various kinds rules out the myth that everything had derived from one common source. Every plant, just as every animal reproduces after its kind, each has its own DNA and can only direct the reproduction of the same kind. Each kind is programmed to allow for a wide variety of individuals within the kind, but not beyond the structure of the kind itself. I think Jay talked about this when he was here doing his creation uh, seminar. You know, you have dogs, you have all sorts of kind of different dogs, but you don't have a dog producing a cat or vice versa. God's word taken in a literal and traditional sense in the creation is amazingly in sync with what we now see in the real world, especially now with such data from DNA. The simple words in Genesis 1 most closely sync with reality. This is, <laughs> and have you noticed we're moving further and further from reality in our world? Why? Because we've moved so far from this. This is a mythological book bunch of allegories and stories at best moral lessons can be learned from no no this is reality this is what god has told us is true he is truth day 4 genesis 1:14 through 19 then god said let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. So God said, let there be lights. On the very first day of creation, God said, let there be light, singular. And on the fourth day, God said, let there be lights, luminaries or light givers. Intrinsic light first, then generators of light later. Another word for lights could be luminaries. Now in the expanse of the heavens that is stretched out in space, that takes a place between the waters above and the waters below, the Hebrews saw this as solid base that supported the waters above. How precise God is to say he placed the lights in the expanse, in the expanse of the heavens and not just in the heavens. Also note that this is another separation that takes place. The first was light from darkness, day, day one. The second was waters below, waters above. The third was land from the seas. And now the fourth, day from night. There have been light and dark since the very first day. What kind of light? Well, Light rays impacting the earth as it rotated on its axis during the first three days of essentially the same intensities and directions as those that would later emanate from the heavenly bodies to be placed in the expanse on the fourth day. How? How does that all work? A possible answer. 
Right? A possible answer. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 21, 23. You see, we can look at the new heavens and the new earth created by God after the consummation and eternity future begins where the new Jerusalem is lit by the glory of God. In verse 23 of chapter 21, it says, The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. Why? For the glory of God illuminated it. Do I understand this? Not a chance. I'm sorry. Not a chance. But the Scripture does teach this, that there's not going to be a sun and a moon. In the new heavens and new earth, there will be no sea, and there's no sun and there's no moon. But light is present because the glory of God illuminates it. It's not difficult to believe when we remember that James identifies this as saying, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift from above coming down from the Father of lights. There's a name for God. The Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And God made the two great lights, luminaries, the greater light, the sun, to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. Now, this is, of course, a reference to the sun and the moon, and the sun and moon are not of the same substance. The sun actually generates light and heat, whereas the moon only reflects it. Yet both can be construed as giving light, because they do one during the day and one at night. I remember in Taliabo, <laughs> there were no cities for miles and miles and hundreds of miles. And when we had a full moon, it was light outside. You'd have all sorts of shadows cast everywhere. It was so beautiful, unbelievably. And, and, <laughs> and the Milky Way, it's like you could, if you could get up on it, you could walk on it. It was just magnificent. And that's just with the naked eye. The sun has a diameter of almost 865,000 miles, which is about 109 times the diameter of the earth. Its volume is 1.3 times greater than that of the earth. This is the sun. Meaning that if the sun were hollow, it would take more than 1 million earth-sized objects to fill it. It's big. And if the sun were the size of a bowling ball, then the earth, by comparison, would look like a poppy seed. It's huge. And the surface temperature of the sun is estimated at about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And scientists believe the temperature at its core to be 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. The moon also is huge. Its diameter is more than one quarter of the earth, and it's larger than the planet Pluto. Its surface temperature varies enormously compared to the Earth. It can be as hot as 250, uh, 215 degrees Fahrenheit or as cold as minus 240 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, so who wants to go to the moon? Any volunteer? You do? Okay. I hope you have a really warm suit and a strong air conditioner for those variations. It's closest to the Earth when it's approximately 221,000 miles from it, and at its furthest, 252,000 miles away, due to the elliptical orbit of the moon. Now, the moon, like the sun, helps keep everything in perfect balance in Earth's life, 
and sustains our environment. Ocean tides are caused by the moon's gravitational pull. High tides align with the moon on both sides of the earth. And this is, it, it just all happened. It just happened. That the sun is just the right distance away from us so that we don't completely disintegrate with the heat of it and isn't too far away so that we absolutely freeze. Funny how that just happened all by itself. People, how much faith do you have? This seems much more easy, if you will, to believe that there is a creator. And then I love how it says at the end of the verse, where is it here? Uh, End of verse 16. He made the stars also. It's kind of like, oh yeah, I forgot. I don't think Moses said that, but it's almost as it's an aside, God made also the stars. Everything in earth's system can be placed into one of four major systems, land, water, living things, or air. And these four subsystems are called spheres, right? Specifically, they're the lithosphere, which is land, the hydrosphere, which is water, biosphere, which is living things, and of course, the atmosphere, which is air. Now, on the first day of creation, God created and energized the entire universe, the infinite sphere of divine activity and purpose. And on the second day, he made the primeval hydrosphere and atmosphere for the terrestrial sphere. On the third day, he made the earth's lithosphere, land, and plant, the biosphere. Finally, on the fourth day, he made the astrosphere, where the celestial, it's a celestial sphere where the stars and the planets surrounding and illuminating the terrestrial sphere are. Now, I want to quote something from you. This is, this is going to stagger you, but it's, it's true. When you stop to think about this, there are only two ways to understand the origin of the complex solar system. And I'm not even going to get into the complexities of it. And you get into binary stars, stars that literally orbit each other, star systems that revolve around a solid center mass. When you get into massive galaxies, when you get into all the complexities of these things, it's, it's absolutely staggering. In fact, there's nothing about these stars and these galaxies, there's nothing about them that is common to all of them. Listen, they're like fingerprints, these stars and these galaxies. They're like human beings Every star, every set of stars, every set of binary stars, every one of these little galaxies and solar systems has the fingerprint of God upon them, and each is unlike the other. Just happened. And this is from the Scientific American Journal. And the man I'm quoting is George Wald, if you want to look him up. He's a Harvard uh, professor and winner of the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine. He says this, quote, The reasonable view was to believe in either a spontaneous generation of everything, and the only other alternative is to believe in a single primary act of supernatural creation. There is no third way. So he brings it down to just two ways. Spontaneous, okay, generation, everything from nothing, okay, or primary supernatural creation by a single primary source. 
He's right. Either you believe in spontaneous generation, that once there was none of this, and spontaneously, it just came out. And everything was just set the way it's set. Or you believe in a supernatural creation. He's right that there's no alternative. Wald, with no rationale given, went on to state his view. Now listen to this to understand how unbelief will blind the mind. Quote, One has to contemplate, he says, the magnitude of this task to concede that the spontaneous generation of living organism is impossible. Yet here we are as a result, I believe, of spontaneous generation. It's like those soldiers in the garden, isn't it? Who are you? I am Christ. They all fall down and they get back up and arrest him. Hello. He says, yet here we are as a result of what I believe of spontaneous generation, even though he just said that's impossible. He would say the entire universe, billions upon billions of galaxies, is a product of irrational, random, spontaneous generation, something coming into existence out of nothing. Because if Wald were to admit, now here's the clincher, if he's to admit that it's a result of a single primary act of supernatural creation, that would mean there would have to have been a creator. That means you're under the jurisdiction of someone greater than yourself. And if that creator exists, it means mankind is under his authority as their creator. There's someone greater than the self. And instead, he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness and consciously believes in a lie. One that he even says is impossible. That's why I believe that Romans 1.16 is so very, very true. When you're up against this kind of thinking and this kind of self-deception, you are not going to reason somebody to believe the gospel. The gospel itself is the power of God, the dynamite of God to bring people to faith. There is no other way than to preach a clear gospel and let the Spirit of God do his work in people's lives. You can't reason with people like this. They're completely enslaved by their mindset. Day 5. Genesis 1, 20-23. Then God said, again, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which, uh, with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird of its kind and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Well, here we see that he begins to fill what he had created and differentiate it now. He's got the earth, he's got the expanse, and now he begins to, to, to create it. And he says that he created it, that's bara again. Life is created by God. Bara. Man doesn't create life. It comes from non-pre-existing materials. And life is unique. And life has 
independent movement, and life has blood in it, and life has nefesh, which is self-awareness. It has life. All living organisms were created with three unique properties. They're self-sustaining. Listen to this. They're self-sustaining, they're self-repairing, and they are self-reproducing. Now, I'm talking all life forms, plant life as well as animal life and fish and bird. They're all self-sustaining. How? Well, they eat. They rest when they're tired. They recharge their batteries. Some of us don't do that very well. We should try harder. (laughs) But they're self-sustaining. Self-repairing, you get a cut. How is it that your body begins to take care of that cut? And the blood kind of coagulates and you get a scab over it. It's the same with a plant. Man, I damaged so many trees when I got my zero clearance lawnmower. (laughs) Some of them damaged beyond repair. They could not really self-repair. They said, I give up, and they died. But a lot of them, the bark just grew over those big gapping wounds I made in those trees. And And the bark just grew over it, and everything's okay. I mean, it's scarred. You can see the scar. But it's self-repairing. And they're self-reproducing after its kind, right? After its kind. So bara is the word that I brought up in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's also in verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he Him, male and female, created he them. And God is a creator and creating ex nihilo, just as in Hebrews 11.3 tells us, by faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. This doesn't talk about the differentiation that he does where the earth appeared out of the seas and so forth. That's different. That's asa. That's using created material and differentiating between it. When he came to life, that's bara. That's created from nothing. Only God creates life, and life is created. Life is living. It's unique. All through Genesis 1, 20 through 30, God uses this adjective to describe what he created on days 5 and 6. Nowhere in Scripture, all of Scripture, is a term living ascribed to plants the life and living of the creatures in the Bible. Plants and vegetation are for food, and they fuel the living things. This alone makes a creature, birds and fish, land animals, unique in God's creation thus far. And I'll talk about that later. There are movers and creepers. Okay? Life moves. It moves. The life that God created in days five and six can move freely. They fly, they move, they swim, They creep. And life is in the blood. Life has blood. Not plant life. Though not specifically in Genesis 1, it differentiates the life of living animals from plant and vegetation created on day 4 in Leviticus 17.11. It teaches us that the life of the flesh is in the blood. So that differentiates animals and mankind from plant life. Therefore, If a moving creature has blood, it was alive, and it had blood, it had life. Now, life shows self-awareness. 
It has a soul, not in the same sense as humans have souls, but it has nefesh. That's the word that we use for the human soul. It's not saying that land animals and birds and fish are the same as human beings, and I'll get on more on that when we get into the creation of man. But on day five, we see the first time, the first day, where God barred again. It's the first time since the very first verse where he actually created from nothing. And the earth and the near heavens were prepared to receive living creatures and birds and fish and land animals. And the food sources were all in place and the world was ready to receive living creatures. But it was all moving towards a crescendo. Okay, and that comes on day six next week. Psalm 33, six through nine says this, by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, and he lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it was, he commanded, and it stood. Oh my gosh. Yahweh, the all-powerful, all-knowing, as clearly evidenced through his creative activities. It's staggering truth when we remember that this same God stoops to entreat people to trust him and understand that he loves them and desires what is best for them if they would only believe him. That is not a sign of weakness, but rather a display of magnificent mercy and grace towards sinners. The Bible says God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The same creator died for each person, if you only believe it. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this creation story that amazes our minds. And Father, to those of us that have bowed the knee it makes us bow even lower with our face to the floor, worshiping you and your wonderful, wonderful, wonderful strength and power. To talk of the stars as an afterthought. To think of the sun and the moon and the galaxies all put in place by your hand and yet you condescend and say, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy burden." and I will give you rest for your souls. What a magnificent God. Macro to micro, God to man. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.